May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Father, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A number of years ago, one of my dear friends, a person I got to know even better over the years from this occasion, had a little baby. And it was not their first child, but uh, within about two days, the baby died. Uh, He was in our church, him and his family, and they were seekers looking for faith, came and asked if we'd assist in the memorial. And while searching through Scripture, trying to, as a pastor, be helpful in a very difficult situation, I came across a text that was helpful to me and I think in that situation, in the last part of Isaiah 11 and 6, it says, And a little child shall lead them. And we talked around the subject of this little baby who still could have an influence in that young family for faith. I baptized that guy, the dad, some years later. I really remember him and his baptism particularly, because he was a very large person. And in that particular situation, we didn't have a baptistry at the church, so we visited another church to baptize Don. And so on that occasion, the church was full of folk, and the baptistry was down in the front here, and Don was about 300 pounds, and I was not much more than I am now. And I could, (laughs) standing in the tank, and uh, said a few words to Don, and then, I, I, of course, I'd explained how it all works, right? So I lowered him down like this. And when he came up, the whole congregation went, oh. <laughs> A little child shall lead them. We don't usually let children lead us at all. Children don't lead. Children are the ones who have to learn. Hence, we're sending them all back to school next week. Children are the ones who have to learn. They are to be led. Uh, Children don't lead us. However, some of you may have, as I did recently, read a book entitled, by Todd Burpo, entitled Heaven is for Real. And, of course, some of you know that there's been a movie made of the book as well. And it's the story of a family who basically, with a a daughter and a son named Colton, and a new baby boy, in the context of the story. And on one occasion, they were returning to a town north of their home uh, on a family trip, and the town that they were coming to was a town in which, not too long ago, they've had had a very difficult experience, because Colton had an emergency appendectomy in that city at that hospital. And as they went back to the hospital, to that town, and went nearby the hospital, they asked, you know, Colton, do you want to just go back in the emergency and and just remember your experience, and do you want to uh, renew it at all? And, And he said, oh, you mean where I sat on Jesus' lap? And um, this introduces the book and the story to us. Because when he had that appendectomy, as the story goes, he's three and a half years old, 
And when he had his appendectomy, he had what is called a near-death experience. And amongst the things that he told his parents over the next years, actually, certainly months, as the story began to unfold and this little guy who was less than four years old began to describe his experience in the hospital. And several instances in the book, for me this morning, challenge us to this whole idea that maybe this child has something for us. One of the stories he told, a little four-year-old, to his parents some months later was, I saw you and mom, he said to his dad, I saw you and mom while you were praying in the room in the hospital, and I saw mom in another room on the cell phone. These instances of his recalling his experience of his appendectomy and his out-of-body or after-death experience, I guess, uh, began to puzzle his parents as they would to you and as, a, as these kinds of stories have puzzled all of us for years. And so his dad, who was a pastor, began to do some research in his scriptures and in so forth because the things his son was telling him, he had to check on them to see if there's any biblical validity to what his son was saying. And so over the months, he had a listening ear to their son checking scripture and calmly trying not to push his son as he was turning four years old. You know, like you, many times I found myself skeptical of after-death experiences. Recently, I've again gone back online. You can do it. There are a lot of stories of people who've had experiences uh, where they have appeared to have died for a while and returned to life and had stories to tell. But this little guy who was less than four years old, who can't even read at the time, tells his story. One more illustration that I remembered in the book. One day Colton spoke to his mom, and he said to mom, he said, I saw my other sister. And uh, his mom sort of was puzzled uh, what he meant, because there had been a miscarriage. His mom had 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 a miscarriage. Never mentioned it, of course, to their little son. And uh, the mom didn't know that the baby that was miscarried was a girl. And, of course, the girl had no name. And Colton said to his mom, I met my sister, but she doesn't have a name. I've been challenged by the text this morning and by this little book, as maybe you are too. Because as I read that particular story, I recalled the fact that Judy also had a miscarriage after Glenn, our oldest, was born in Louisville, Kentucky, we had a miscarriage. We don't know the gender of the child. But now I realize that that fifth child of ours will someday be met by us, and we plan to give him or her a name when we see them. The reality of heaven, the reality of the afterlife, the reality of what the Bible teaches in all its You know, not everything's clear, I agree, not everything's solid, but this morning we'll look at a couple of things that I think are an encouragement to us. You see, I want to give a consideration this morning to us as we think of this book and we think of this text that has to do with an understanding of our Bible, which we believe is our rule for faith and practice. We as Baptists, we as believers often express that, even in our Constitution, we believe the Scriptures is our rule for faith and practice. 
We espouse that even as we sing this morning our testimony of who Jesus is. So what does that mean? We believe the Scripture influences our rule of faith and practice. From the teachings of Plato, certainly, centuries ago, there was an influence around the time of the writing of the New Testament and Jesus' life on earth, an influence that influenced the Greek at the time, that suggested that spiritual is good and physical is evil. And that in the scriptures and at the time of Christ and the writing since, this became known as the teachings of Gnosticism, which is from the Greek word to know. Spiritual is good, but physical is evil. And this simple sway of thought has not been sufficiently eradicated from Western thought today. There is still a sense that anything physical is evil. And therefore, whatever heaven is like, it certainly can't be physical. Because physical, all to do with physical is evil. And heaven isn't evil. And this thinking that was prevalent back before Christ's time and prevalent since and prevalent today has influenced the way some passages in Scripture are interpreted. Of course there are biases out there. It's only one. Biases that influence the way we try to to interpret this book, which is our rule of faith and practice. And many evangelical Christians today tend to separate Scripture into allegory or symbolism as opposed to literal meaning. And that's a tension we carry, yes. Is it allegorical? Is it story? Is it literal? And I don't have simple answers, of course. There are no simple answers, but the ten- we live in that tension, even as we read the Bible today. There is allegory in Scripture. There is story in Scripture. But the decision about which is which is not easily done. My mom used to say, in this regard, whatever you believe about Scripture, if you suggest God could not do something, that is, He is unable to do something, You've crossed the line in terms of your faith in God's Word. Thanks, Mom. And I raise this concurrence today because it's relevant to the understanding of heaven and the last things, things we've sung about this morning. Our fuller understanding of heaven is dependent on what we see as teaching about heaven and what we cast aside as allegory or story. And so the experience of Lazarus the rich man from Luke chapter 16 that was read this morning, fits into this discussion briefly today. Let's look at the story again, afresh. The first thing I want you to notice this morning about the story in Luke 19 is his name is given. That is the name of Lazarus. You will not find in Scripture anywhere else in the parables of Jesus that a name is given. Now, it would have been confusing at the time because it could have been because Lazarus was a poor man. And Jesus' friend, his name was Lazarus, and he wasn't poor at all. So there need to be some clarification about who Jesus is talking about in this story. This is not an allegory. Lazarus was real and is the only name given in Scripture when Jesus tells a story. Even the rich man doesn't have a name. So if it's real, it will add less, it will help us in our confusion about Jesus' story at this time. 
In John chapter 11, you do have the story of Lazarus because it's real. It's not allegorical. So first of all, his name is given. Secondly, there's visual contact. contact. Look at verse 23. There's visual contact. They both die. The rich man dies and he's in hell. Hell, by the way, is a very serious doctrine for Jesus in the scriptures, in his teachings. Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in Scripture. And I know there's much confusion about hell as heaven today. Today in my lifetime, hell is mostly referred to as a swear word. And it's creeping more and more into our general language as that, isn't it? And on television, you've noticed, in movies, you've noticed the subtly, even on CBC and regular TV in the middle of the day. Oh, it's just an imaginary place, right? And so we play it down. But the Bible does teach a doctrine of hell. And it's a place this morning that you and I do not have to be afraid about or fear at all. Lazarus was positioned at the side of Abraham. Of course, Abraham's name is given. He's a real person. And the father of the Jews. And they can see each other. The rich man and Abraham and Lazarus. Thirdly, heaven and hell are distinct and present in the story. Verse 24 and verse 27. The story seems to appear in real time, and the rich man is in agony. The reality of hell is his. And he looks and he spots a long ways away a person he recognizes somehow, I don't know how, as Abraham. But he also recognizes Lazarus, who he did know. And at a great distance, they see each other. Is it real? Is it allegory? Is it real? Possible this experience is granted to the rich man and Lazarus as an exception to the norm. For no other scripture refers to an experience like this. Now there is a hint, as you may be aware, in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul refers to a man who somehow experienced the third heaven, but that's all it ever says. That's the only other reference like it. Not sure really how clear that is. But do you see this morning where an understanding of the Bible and its purpose is critical to our theology? If this is allegory, we learn very little about heaven and hell. And why even tell the story? Fourth, I want you to notice that there's a verbal contact. Somehow, um, the, the rich man is able to speak out and call out. And in the question of his moment, he looks and he shouts. Imagine the strangeness shouting to what may not be real. But I'll try anyway, I'm desperate. And he shouts, and there's a response. There's verbal communication between the rich man and Lazarus. Fifthly, notice, there's an ability to remember. Verse 25, And Abraham replied, Son, doesn't give his name, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Remember? And somehow in this instance, the rich man can remember, although he's dead. He has an awareness. And Abraham logs logs into it and asks him an opinion. Can you remember? He was able to recall his experience of Lazarus. He was able to recall his experience of life. Number six, the text says to us there's a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell. Not real clear to understand, of course, but distance is obvious. 
but visibility is clear. This leads to the importance of paying attention to considering the opportunity in this life to read and learn what Scripture says about last things. For we believe that our guidebook is the Bible for living in this life and for understanding the next. And it's clear over centuries and in decades of your own life, it's clear that these things leave much to be discussed and understood. But some things are more clear than others. A great chasm fixed between these two. And seventh, I think this is critical this morning as we stand around in a moment uh, and celebrate the Lord's table. Number seven is, as it says in verse 27 and in verse 31, our loved ones will remain unconvinced. Verse 27, he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. In verse 31, Jesus says in this incidence, he said to them, Abraham said, if they do not, as Jesus tells the story, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So how is this experience, the little book and the scripture and the story for you and me today? We have God's word before us. We have the preached word before us. We have the Bible revealed to us over, over uh, centuries. Revealed to us and given to us by the work of the Holy Spirit and the writings of people, real people, saints of the past. We have a picture in this story of the future, a picture of what seems to be so clear. To write it off as totally allegorical leaves us cold and not really much wiser. And there are other scriptures to support the idea that the Holy Spirit wants us to learn something this morning. We have the transfiguration. Again, these are experiences that you, you wonder. How real was it to the people there? They tell us about it. It's in Scripture, but how real? For all of us, situations like this in the Bible always come to a point of making a decision. Do I believe it? Do I not? Transfiguration. Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Philip's experience with seeing Jesus. Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. What do you think? What do you believe? It's a belief, isn't it? It's, do I believe it? Do I understand it? Do I not? Through our whole life, even when we've made a profession of faith in Christ, we still wrestle with issues of the meaning and importance of this word, this Bible in our lives. Is it our rule for faith and practice or not? We wrestle all the time. One of my favorites, the road to Emmaus. These all point to an understanding of what I call and what has been called in the past a present heaven. A present heaven. A temporary place, but a place that exists nonetheless. So Jesus could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me today in a present heaven. Look with me briefly then to 1 Thessalonians, words that are our encouragement for us this morning, an interesting expression in the beginning of verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Brothers and sisters, in the context of exactly the questioning we have this morning, exactly the issue we wrestle with this morning, Paul writes to a church who are asking the same question in a sense and says this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Ah, the subject this morning about the future is a subject of hope for those of us. Often repeated at a memorial service when we say we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Verse 14 of the same chapter, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we are who, who are still alive, who are left behind until the coming of the Lord, and we will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left that is on earth, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be together with the Lord forever. Two, the dead in Christ and the living coming together as one, together in the resurrection time. And then verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the stories of near-death experiences, as confusing and puzzling as they may be, cause me to always go back to what I find in God's Word as the rule of faith and practice. How does what is happening help me understand what I read online, or a book I read, or a person who tells me about their near-death How do I judge it? I judge it based upon this which I consider is God's understanding, direction for us in terms of near-death experiences. Stories of near-death experiences, the light, etc., could very well depict what Scripture is saying to us through the Holy Spirit. And little Colton Burpo's story fits a concept of the present heaven. It's a glimpse of the future. This gives us a hope that God has not forsaken us all. There is a heaven, a place where loved ones await us. Amen? Hmm. One last story this morning from the book of Heaven is for Real. Colton one day said to his father, I met your grandfather in heaven. Uh, So by this time, his dad is very perceptive of the things the little boy is saying and simply listens and goes about his business, you know, just listening because the story seems so unreal. But the dad thought about this. Colton's father thought about it. And uh, so he showed his son a picture of his grandfather that they had in the house. Little four-year-old Colton looked at this picture and said, uh, no, no, I don't, that doesn't really look like him. So, um, fine, and the dad's thinking about this some more, and a few weeks later he writes his mom, persistent daddy, writes his mom and says, do you have a picture of your father? Well, as a matter of fact, she did. She had a picture of him from the war. He's been dead 30 years already, and she, but she's got a picture of him when he was an officer in the war. So she sends it in the mail to her son, Colt's dad. Few, and then so sometime later, he comes to his little son, Colton, again, and he says, um, 
Here's a picture of my grandfather. And Colton looks at this picture. And he says as he looks at this, that's him. He's young and he doesn't have glasses. Nobody in heaven wears glasses. Everybody's young. And he recognizes his great-grandfather at that moment. Are you ready, my friends, for the present heaven? Does your faith in Scripture and your faith walk allow you to be comfortable with the idea that our loved ones await us and we'll see them? Somehow we'll recognize them and it'll be visual and they'll be able to talk and see and understand. I'm not totally clear how that works, of course, but that's my faith in Scripture. The Lazarus story with the rich man is not one of the parables. It's not allegorical. It's one instance in Scripture where the the curtains are open just a little, just to peek, just to listen, just to try to understand. Because this morning, my friends, what this Scripture is trying to teach all of us is the truth about Jesus Christ, who lived, physically lived in history, who died on the cross in reality, It's all substantiated, of course, historically. Those things are outside of Scripture. But then the Scripture says to you and me, but on the third day, he rose from the dead. Spent some time on this earth physically. He could be seen. He could be touched. He ate and eventually went to the present heaven. The Bible encourages us to believe that. And as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's like, okay, George, yeah, I believe it, and I share the bread and the cup because I believe Jesus did that for me personally, and he's coming again for me personally. But this morning, you may say, you know, Pastor George, I'm still not sure. I've heard this for years. I've, I, I believe what the Scripture says, but it's not personally my story yet. I read recently of an illustration of three frogs. You may have heard of it, sitting on a log. And two frogs decided to leap off the log. And as the illustration goes, how many frogs are on the log? And there are two answers, right? One answer is one. But one answer is three. Why? Because they decided to jump off the log, but didn't. And so some of us this morning have come to a place of faith where we believe who Jesus is, we believe he's resurrected, we believe he died for our sins. It's in our belief system. We believe it. We're sitting on the log, but we haven't jumped by faith and accepted him as Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, my friend, you know how to get a hold of me. We can talk about this later. Jump off the log by faith. And put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And through the Holy Spirit, come to a better understanding of the present heaven. Shall we pray? Precious Jesus, for everything about you that we've sung about and everything we've praised God for this morning, we thank you. But as we pray, Father, if there are those this morning who have yet to actually accept Jesus in their life and heart this morning, I pray that you give them courage of action and faith. I thank you, Lord, for your word that while there's so much we do not yet understand and there's so much that conflicts with what seems to be reality, we thank you that this morning we can be reassured that what you have given us in Scripture will ultimately make absolute sense because it's truth for us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.